0: Eventually we're going to make our way into Thessalonians and we're going to kind of dig into a passage on um, why we believe into the, uh, the rapture of the church. But before we get there, I want to again kind of lay some groundwork uh, down for us. I want to begin by just talking about there are two systems of theology. And, and although Tyler didn't name them, we're going to name them specifically. And it greatly impacts how people interpret scripture, as well as what view they have of the end times. Um, And these two systems of theology are dispensationalism and covenantalism. So dispensationalism um, is typically broken down into seven periods of time. It could be more or less, but seven periods of time in which God worked And um, there's a lot to dig into that, but I'm just going to kind of leave it right there. Um, And then in dispensationalism, there are a couple of key components to dispensationalism. And one is just what you were taught, a consistent literal approach to interpreting scripture. And I I use the word consistent because what I said just a moment ago, they do use literal interpretation In 90% of the Bible, but when it comes to prophecy, they stop. So a dispensationalist is going to, you say, well, am I one of those? I don't know. You might be a dispensationalist. Um, But it's one who's going to use a consistent, literal approach to interpreting Scripture, specifically prophetic passages. Secondly, dispensationalism has as one of its key elements that there is a difference between Israel and the church. Now, both of these thoughts were kind of laid out for you in this past study, but just to lay them down in the structure, that's what dispensationalism is. So you may say, okay, well, I don't know what all that means. Well, here are some people maybe you can identify that will help you to know um, what you think um, about this system. Um, Charles Ryrie was a dispensationalist. Norm Geisler was a dispensationalist. Um, John Walvard was a dispensationalist. Anybody ever been on the Bible bus? Vernon McGee? James Vernon McGee? He was a dispensationalist. Tim LaHaye? Chuck Smith. Um, Andy Stanley. I mean, uh, I mean Charles Stanley. Um, so there's a lot of people that you may know that would take this approach and, and would hold to that. I definitely would say, yes, I am a dispensationalist, because of that consistent literal approach to Scripture. And really, I believe when you have that as your first point, you will come to the second conclusion, and that is there is a distinction between Israel and the church. Now, uh, Jewish people can certainly be a part of the church, but the church is not Israel. And I think a consistent literal approach will bring you to that point. The other um, system of theology... Is covenantalism, and um, it sounds you know when we hear that, say, like, well, that sounds far more biblical than dispensationalism, um, and and certainly the Bible has covenants in it, right? And we can we read these and we study these. We think about the Abrahamic covenant, the Noah covenant, um, the Davidic covenant, um, the Palestinian covenant, or the land covenant, as it's called sometimes. It's like we're into covenants. We know about covenants. So covenantalism sounds more um, biblical. But what you need to know about covenantalism is that they don't use the named covenants of the Bible. So you may think, well, covenantalism, I can, that's what I want to be because that sounds more biblical. Well, but what you need to know is they don't use those covenants to define their system. They approach it differently. And let me give you a quote about covenantalism. It says, covenant theology is a system of biblical interpretation that is found primarily in Protestant denominations. It views God's dealings with man in respect of covenants rather than dispensations or periods of time. It represents the whole scripture as covenantal in its structure and theme. And the two covenants that are usually used of this is a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. The covenant of works being in the uh, garden. Um, Adam, here you are. Here's your chance for eternal life. Don't mess up. He messed up. So God overlaid on top of that a covenant of grace that provided a way for man to receive eternal life. And so they view all of Scripture through those two types of covenants. And I, I'm just I'm just wetting your appetite. But those are two systems of theology. All right, Who's involved with this? Well, there's a lot of great godly people that are covenantalists. J.I. Packer. That's a That's a godly man. He's with the Lord. He's got his theology totally straight on this point, though. R.C. Sproul. Gentry, uh, John Piper, and we could go down a list of good, godly men and women that hold to a differing point of view. So, this isn't like you're either in or out of the kingdom, all right, type of a conversation. It is a secondary issue. But just because it's secondary doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it and study it seriously. Can anybody really know? What the Lord has to say. Can anybody really understand the book of Revelation? Which I like to say, can you tell me what the name of that book again is? A revelation? I think we can. I think it's a revelation. Um, you know, so, I mean, it, that, it, he could have used a different name. He could have said, hiding all things, you know. But <laughs> it's, it's called a book of Revelation. And here's an interesting verse. Amos chapter 3, verse 8. 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Prophecy is a revelation. is an unveiling of a secret that God gives to people. So the, the, the prophecy is God's revelation. He's telling you a secret. He's telling you something you don't know otherwise. So the idea that we could not know prophecy just... It doesn't make sense to me. Obviously, some do think that is the case. So that's two systems of theology. So we're going to talk about the rapture now. Um, and there, there are three views of the rapture. Then we're going to talk about the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. And, we're going to, and there's three views to that. So let's, let's go ahead and start by talking about the three views in, uh, with the rapture. Um, The pre-trib, pre-tribulational, pre-trib view believes the church will be raptured before the great tribulation. What is the great tribulation? Revelation 6 through 19. Revelation 6 through 19. This is when God pours out his wrath upon this world this is when you have the demons coming out of the obuso this is when you have the mark of the beast this is when you have people wanting to kill themselves and they can't this is when you have famine and earthquakes and stars falling from the sky this is when you have hailstones weighing a ta- 100 talents i mean this is 70 75 pounds falling from the sky I mean, this is a terrible time to be alive. And so a pre-trib, so I believe that the church is going to be gone pre-tribulation um, and she'll be raptured out before that begins. Uh, another view, and there are, there are other modifications of, this as, of each of these, but the mid-trib view believes that the church will experience the first half of the tribulation. And the reason they say this is they don't believe anything bad. really is going on in the first half of the tribulation that it all happens in the second half of the tribulation. But if you read in Revelation chapter six, which is at the very beginning, um, what we read the world saying is hide us from the wrath of what? The lamb. So evidently, (laughs) right at the beginning, There is a statement from the world they're trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. So um, the mid-trib view, what they're trying to do is say God won't judge uh, his people and allow allow wrath to come upon him. So mid-trib, the church will be gone. Then there's the post-trib, and post-trib believes the church will go through the entire tribulation. Uh, So those are are pretty easy concepts. A time of God's judgment upon this earth. Revelation 6 through 19. Do we go before? Do we go before it gets bad? Or do we go through the whole thing? Those are the three different views. Believe firmly that um, it is a pre-trib view that the Bible teaches. Now, if you hold to a post-trib view, um, don't want to argue with you about it. Don't want to get in a fight with you about it. Um, I just will say that whatever system you believe, when the rapture happens, that's when you go up. (laughs) No, that's not really true. But that would it would kind of be funny if it was in a weird kind of funny way. But but I say no, that's not. I mean, but I seriously i on the way up. We'll explain it to you. And you will never be so happy to be wrong that you held to a post-trib view, that you're not going through the Great Tribulation. And you say, well, yeah, but Troy, what if you're wrong? Then I hope you're storing up a lot of beans and rice because I'm storing none up and I'm going to have to come to your house for those seven years and eat with you. Just saying, store a lot. But let's talk about some passages in the New Testament that speak of a pre-tribulation view. So, first of all, Jesus promised escape. Jesus promised escape. Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. And this is writing to the seven churches, uh, to one of those churches. um, They're in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And he's writing to them. And he's talking about the things they are going through. Um, In some of these instances, he talks about events that are going to happen in the last days. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, is speaking to what I like to call a last days church. So in other words, this is a church, Church of Philadelphia, um, that spiritually is going to be around. This is what we read in verse 10. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one takes away your crown. Very clearly here, Jesus is telling this church, there's going to come a worldwide trial. We call it the Great Tribulation. It's about what what John's about to start talking about in just a couple of chapters. And Jesus says, if you are faithful, and you're going to persevere, and who perseveres? Those who have faith, is what 1 John tells us. And so if you do that, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon this whole earth. You're not going to face it. You're not going to go through it. So Jesus promised escape. Spend some more time studying this and looking at this. Another passage quickly that kind of tells us where we even get the idea of the word or the word rapture from. And Jesus or Paul spoke to the church at Thessalonica and said that the church was going to be raptured. He talks about it. Raptured. And the word rapture means to be snatched up, caught up. So let's read where this promise is given. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with trumpets of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured. Caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be With the Lord, therefore, fight fiercely over this with one another. (laughs) Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Be comforted in the fact that one day you are going to be caught up. And we can look to other places. One common objection that I think is probably the worst objection ever made for why you should not believe in the view of pre-trib rapture is because the word rapture is not in the Bible. <coughs> to which I like to respond, which Bible and which language? Because there's a Bible has been written in a lot of different languages. So which one? Well, it's not in the English. Okay, it's not in the English. Well, it's not in the Greek. It's, it's different. You're right. It's, it's, it's harpazo here. So where do we get the word rapture from? Well, we get it because the, the scriptures were translated into Latin. And in Latin, it's the word rapturo. And so this is where we get that theological term, um, rapture, meaning we get caught up to be with the Lord in the air before the great tribulation starts on planet Earth. Like, well, when's that going to happen? We don't know. But I do know this, we're nearer than we've ever been before. Like, well, how do you know that? Take a look in the mirror. You look in the mirror, and as you look in the mirror, you're going to go, man, you're getting older. And if you're getting older, then you are heading towards meeting the Lord on this side of that line and Jesus is coming back. And who's, you know, if the line is here and we don't know where that is, so who's going to cross the line first? Is Jesus going to come back and we're going to go up or or is Jesus going to be here and we're going to cross the line and uh, meet the Lord? Not through the rapture, but through uh, passing from this life into the next like Stephen did. Right. That when he was stoned, he was immediately in the presence of the Lord. But this is a great hope. There will be a generation that is alive. We don't know when, but there will be a generation of believers that are alive that are going to be caught up, violently snatched out of their shoes and sandals to meet the Lord in the air. What a moment that's going to be. You know what? When I was... I was a tr- i was a troublemaker um, my parents will verify this um, my wife would say i could see it um, <laughs> she hasn't really seen it but she goes i believe it um, but i used to get in trouble a lot in school i wasn't a bad kid i just was i had a smart mouth right and so it got me in a lot of trouble and i often ended up down at the principal's office And I can remember one day, and I knew I was going to get SWATs. They don't do that anymore. Did anybody ever get SWATs growing up? Just, yeah. Those were the good old days, weren't they? Yeah. You wore your gym shorts. You wore your thermals. Especially if it's cold winter, it's perfect. You wear your thermals under. You wear jeans. You could really kind of put it all on there so when you got SWATed. And I remember just praying, oh, Jesus, when he goes to SWAT me, I pray the rapture will happen. Because I want to be taken right right when he goes to hit me, and then this man could freak out. You know, that was my thought. That was my, that was the 16 year old prayer. You know, I, I didn't quite have my theology all worked out yet, but I just thought he deserves that. <laughs> um, but there's going to be a day where you're just, you're, you're, you're having a cup of coffee, you're at work, you're doing whatever, you're taking care of the kids, your grandkids, you know, you're having a Bible study. You're in church worshiping. Now, that would be a cool one, wouldn't it? Amen. And, and the Lord's going to come back. One generation of the church. <clears throat> it might be our generation. It could be our generation. And so we should allow ourselves to be going to be caught up in the air. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to meet all those that have gone before us in the faith. Your family, your friends, you know, the early church, all of the people, they're going to be, we're going to meet them in the air. They're going to come out of their, their graves first. Their bodies are going to be resurrected. They're spiritually, they're in the presence of the Lord now, but the resurrection, of the bodies will, will happen. They're going to rise and we will meet them in the air. When I've taught this study, uh, just this passage, I like to title it, The Grand Reunion in the Air. Man, it's going to, there's going to be some big time high fives happening. Like, It happened. It was in our generation. We get to be in the presence of the Lord. You're like, yeah, but what if it's not? Well, you're still going to be in the presence of the Lord. You, I mean, you, you just kind of you get to, you're not going to experience the catching up, but you still get the prize, which is Jesus. So Jesus promised that there was going to escape. Paul promised that there was going to be a catching up, a rapture that would take place. The question is: does it happen before the Great Tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation? Does it happen at the end of the tribulation? So turn with me over to Second Thessalonians because we're going to dig in at this point. Because I, I wanted to take a passage and um, I wanted to be able to look at the the passage. What did I do to this thing? I'm trying to be good and have a clock here. <laughs> and it's all messed up. So I think the Lord is saying, "Talk as long as you want to," but. Oh, there it is. Okay. Maybe he's not saying that. All right. <laughs> but I want to dig into this passage. So Second Thessalonians is where we want to be. And I want to begin at verse 1. And um, as we look at this, we're answering the question, uh, the statement, the church is not part of the day. Specifically, the day of the Lord. And um, we'll, we'll define that in just a moment, what the day of the Lord is. But I want to read verses 1 through 7 to begin with. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ, day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So he gives us two things that have to happen, right? First, to know that you're in this day. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So we're talking about the Antichrist there. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so. Until he is taken out of the way. So, as Paul writes them in verse 1, he speaks of two events that concerned these believers. And we see them as the coming and the gathering. And it seems these are two distinct events. Of course, the coming of the Lord as the second coming when he comes back, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, destroys the Antichrist, rescues Israel. And the gathering together of ourselves to him is this rapture event. And so in this verse, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So is he talking about the same event and using different language? Or is he talking about two separate events? I don't see how you can interpret this as a single event because he's making a distinction between the day of the Lord and something else. So I I believe what we have here is the Lord referring to Um, Again, the second coming and the rapture. Uh, So Paul is not wanting them to be troubled. Um, He says in verse two um, that the day of the Lord has not begun. Don't be shaken in your mind or troubled as though, skip to the end, as though the day of the Lord had come. And, And so these believers did not expect to be in the day of the Lord. We're going to define it in just a moment. They did not expect to be in the day of the Lord. If they expected to be in the day of the Lord and they were told they were in the day of the Lord, they would have said something like, Yep, Paul said we would be in the day of the Lord. Or they could have said something like this We're in the day of the Lord. Well, then that means there's only a few years left, maybe seven years, and then Christ is coming back. But when they were told they were in the day of the Lord, what happened to them? They got shaken. They were troubled in their spirit to learn that they were in the day of the Lord. And so Paul writes this whole section to say, you're not in that day. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, here's a definition for you. It's a future day, meaning not only for them, but for us. It's a future day when God will judge this world for the rebellion against him and persecution of the nation of Israel. It is a day when God will also chasten Israel and prepare them for the second coming of Christ. You can just leave that up there for a moment for people who are taking notes and want to just get it in their mind. But the day of the Lord. It's, it's when, it's Revelation chapter six through 19 and really even beyond into the thousand year range, chapter 20. The day of the Lord is a long period of time. It's not a 24 hour period. It's a season. It's a season. It's when, The Lord finishes all the prophecy that was given to Daniel. And he gave it to him in terms of 77-year periods or 70 weeks of time. 69 of those weeks, 483 years, have been accomplished when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 483, there's 490 years determined for them. Seven-year period is left. What is that? It's the Great Tribulation. It's Revelation 6 through 19. And so he's saying, don't fear that you're in this day when God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the nations, when Israel is going to be awakened, when you're going to see all kinds of cataclysmic events. Don't be bothered. Don't let anybody trick you on this. You're not in that day. The day of the Lord is Israel's day, not the church's day. Now, again, if you don't make a distinction, you're going to run into trouble. But I don't see how, if you read literally, you can come to any other conclusion. Let me give you a a verse here that talks about that point that the day of the Lord is for Israel. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 through 9 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of who? Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That's Jesus. And he's going to come back and he's going to rescue Israel. What happened to Israel? How did Israel treat Jesus the first time that he came? They examined him for 33 years and said, you know what? We've been looking at you. We've been looking at your teaching. We've seen all the miracles you've done. And we have decided you're not our kind of guy. We're going to kill you. And they rejected him as a Messiah. And Jesus said, you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting. That verse had been quoted um, on Palm Sunday by his disciples. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees are like, you got to tell your disciples to shut up. We cannot have this kind of talk. They're making it out like you're the king, like you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, somebody's going to say something today. And if it's not my disciples, then the rocks are going to start crying out. And I think all of us kind of wish, we wish the disciples would have been quiet for a little while. Mm. What would have happened? But, but Jesus, you're not, not going to see me anymore. You've rejected me. You should have known this day. And now it's rejected. So the, the, the day of the Lord is when this great tribulation comes upon them. God is not only judging the nations, he's waking up a nation. He's waking up Israel. And they will come to the awareness after two-thirds of them are wiped out in the great tribulation, in their day, they will come to the conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is our Messiah. And guess what I believe they're going to say. What are they going to say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now. Hosanna. And in an instant, Jesus is going to break out of heaven, riding on his white horse and all of the church along with him. Does anybody not like horses? <laughs> Nobody's going to say raise their hand now, right? I mean, okay. so everybody's going to get on the horses, and we're going to come back with the Lord, and He's going to rescue Israel out of her day. They were afraid of what that they were in the day of the Lord. I mean, again, read it again this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, and you can see, he said, don't be afraid that you're in the day of the Lord. This is this is not for you. I told you that this wasn't going to happen. And then he gives them some ways in which they can know for certain that they are not in that day. Again, if they thought that they were going to be in the day of the Lord, they would have been okay with the information. But clearly, they did not expect to be in the day of the Lord. And And he says, I've already told you these things. When I was with you, I told you these things. So if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, so we can read there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 and 5, and then verses 10 and 11. And in this, he tells them that they are not part of the day of the Lord. Very clearly. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So clearly the, he's telling them, you are not a part of this day that's going to overtake this world as a thief. Verse 10. Um, and you can just you can fill in the verses there for a time I'm compressing it and skipping those verses. It says, "Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. Edify strengthen each other because this is not something you're going to be a part of. They were not appointed to wrath, but to salvation. And this is why he says, comfort them in verse nine, but for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, revelation chapter six, the world is crying out and they're saying, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. And so we read here that we are not appointed to wrath. This, time period revelation 6 through 9 is god pouring out his wrath upon a rebellious sinful um, uh, world that has rejected him and he's waking up a nation and they are being chastened severely but for the church the bride of christ We've already come to faith. We've already acknowledged who he is, that he's Lord and Savior. We recognize that he has died on the cross and his wrath has been poured. The father's wrath has been poured out on the son for us who believe. So why would we be a part of that day? Why would we be part of that day? Uh, Back into 2 Thessalonians. um, We come to verse 3. And we read uh, that the day of the Lord will be preceded by apostasy. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. So before the, the, the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be people that are they're turning and walking away. Um, is this a description of the church? Is this a description of a specific openness that the world will have to follow and embrace the Antichrist? It would seem to me that it's the latter, not the former. But he says there's going to be a great falling away that takes place before the day of the Lord. Keep on reading in verse 3 and verse 4. And we see that the day of the Lord will be preceded um, by the Antichrist. It says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the day of the Lord is going to have a falling away. The day of the Lord, you're going to know you're in it because the Antichrist is going to be, be revealed. That's not happening yet, Thessalonians. And so don't expect this. So... When he refers in verse 4 to this event, he is talking about a well-documented event in Scripture known as the abomination of desolation. Happens in the middle of the tribulation. Daniel 9 talks about it. Matthew 24 talks about this day. It is the Antichrist. It is a man that Satan will so totally and completely control. He will come on the scene and everybody will begin to follow him. He'll seem like he has the answers for all of the world's problems. And we know that the world is moving towards this kind of globalistic mindset to follow a single leader. Um, And and so when he comes on the scene, the world will be ripe to follow a single man. And he will seem like a good guy until he doesn't. And that's going to happen at the abomination of desolation. What happens to the Antichrist that makes him think that now he can deceive the world and lead the world? And this is what I believe is going to happen. Halfway At the beginning of the tribulation, there's going to be two witnesses are going to come on the scene. And they will go for 1,260 days until they are killed. It is the Antichrist who kills them. But for 1,260 days, they have been, you couldn't do anything to them. You couldn't poison them. You couldn't shoot them with bullets. You know, uh, you know guided missiles couldn't take them out. Um, you couldn't chop their heads off. They were, you couldn't get near them and do them any harm. And the Antichrist is going to kill them. And at that day, it says the world is going to begin to have a party and give gifts to each other. Because these guys have called plagues down upon the earth. They have caused there to be famine and drought and waters turned to blood. Sound familiar? And, and all of this is going on and the world is just like, we cannot stand these guys. And the Antichrist is going to kill them. And right when that happens there in Jerusalem, he's going to walk from the streets of Jerusalem where he has just killed them and he's going to walk up onto the Temple Mount as we just read here and he's going to say, I'm God. You thought these guys were tough? Well, they were tough. They were amazing tough, but I'm tougher. And now I have, the, I have the equity to be able to do this. And so he's talking about that event. You know that you're not in the day of the Lord because the Antichrist is not on the scene. Look at verse 5. It says, Paul, um, uh, uh, so, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining that he may be revealed? OK, so we know there's going to be apostasy. And we know the Antichrist is going to come. But before the Antichrist comes, there's something that happens that's in front of him. It's restraining him. There's something that's restraining this guy from from coming onto the scene. What is that thing that's restraining him from coming on the scene? And he says, again, verse 6, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his coming and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, the, so there's going to be a great apostasy. You know you're not on the day of the Lord because the apostasy hasn't happened. You know the Antichrist isn't going to be on the scene. And he's not on the scene. And you also know that before he's revealed, this force that restrains him from coming on and manifesting himself, that's got to be removed. And when that happens... Then he can be removed and he can go on with all that he wants to do. And then the Lord will come and then he will be destroyed. So what is this restraining force? Well, as you maybe would imagine, we don't have a lot of information here. So there are some difference of opinions. But I believe what we're talking about here is the present. Listen closely to my words. The presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. The presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. In Acts chapter 2, a significant event took place. The Holy Spirit, remember, came upon the church and empowered her. Question I have for you, was the Holy Spirit present in the world before that? Yes. But in a unique way, he came in Acts chapter 2 upon the church. There's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit's influence and working through the church will be taken out of the way. The church will be caught up. And I would say to you, the restraining force is the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church. And when the church is gone, then the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. These are the things that have to happen before we can be in the day of the Lord. So don't worry about a thing. You're fine. You haven't missed. You haven't missed the kingdom. You haven't missed the rapture. And so somebody was coming and saying, hey, you know, look at all this persecution. We're in the tribulation. Time out. Tribulation. Day of the Lord. We shouldn't be in the day of the Lord. Paul said we wouldn't be in the day of the Lord. No, you're in the day of the Lord. Well, what about, what about the rapture? Obviously, I'm giving some interpretation here. I'm filling it in. What about the rapture? I yeah, I don't know about that thing. So Paul writes and says, all right, somebody's told you you're in the day of the Lord. Not true. It's not true. I told you that you weren't going to be in the day of the Lord. The apostasy hasn't come Come. You don't see the Antichrist. And you know what happens before the Antichrist comes? The restraining force, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church will be gone. Now some will object and say, how ridiculous to say that the Holy Spirit and the omnipresent God manifested in the Spirit will be gone from planet Earth. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody said that. Very specifically, the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in what? The church. So he's going. Well, no, no. If 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 the that is gone, then he's gone. Then I guess you don't believe that the spirit was ever on earth, because Acts chapter two, he came down upon the church. So he is writing and he's trying to explain to them that it is all okay. The believers in Thessalonica should not be looking for uh, should be should still be looking for their gathering together uh, to the Lord before the day of the Lord. I think this is one of the strongest passages. It's not the only passage. I think it's one of the strongest passages in the New Testament to back up this position that the church will not go through the wrath of the day of the Lord. Study it on your own. Study it on your own. You, You need to be a Berean. But this is, if they thought they were going to go through the tribulation They were like, man, it started. Okay, well, that's not good news. It's going to get real bad. But the good news is it's only seven years. Seven years? We can do anything for seven years. The Lord said he's going to be there. All right, that would have been the response had they thought they were supposed to be in the day of the Lord. But they don't think that. that. Is that clear to everybody as you look at that? There's a passage for you to study for sure on your own. So that's the, a pre-tribulation rapture. That's why we hold this view. And I know that uh, some other guys may be getting into this a little bit, and people say, well, the pre-tribulation you know, view is, is new. And this isn't something that you find you know, until the days of John Darby. I think Zach is going to hit this pretty hard. And so this is a new thing. It's a, it's a new idea that came on. Well, it's in my Bible, actually. So I don't know what you're talking about. I mean... John Darby, no John Darby, it's in my Bible. And it says I'm not going to be in the day of the Lord. So, you know, this idea that this is a a new coming theology and it never existed before. No, but just to play the game a little bit, there was a time in church history when the idea that being saved by uh, the grace of God through faith was not how you got to how you got saved. You got saved by by giving money to the church. Now, clearly the Bible teaches that we are not saved that way, that we are saved by our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doctrine was lost. And so there was a reformation. And it was rediscovered. There was a time when people thought you trusted in the church to tell you um, what truth is, and they could change it. But then there was a you know, a reformation, and we came back to this idea that it's not only through faith alone, it's also in Scripture alone. We to the scriptures we rediscovered the Bible a lot of good things happened in the Reformation but you know as many of the theologies and doctrines that we hold dear that got adjusted in um, during the time of the Reformation you know which one they didn't touch at all eschatology this goes back to an Augustinian view and, and so um, he and, and he had this view and it was held and it was not adjusted so so if we're coming back now and we are able to rediscover this doctrine that is already in the scriptures, then it's no different than what's happened in many other times in history, the church getting back to what's already in the Bible. So I don't believe that's the case. Anyways, you got scripture and I do believe that the church um, had this view. So that's the rapture pre post mid, but the other key component of uh, understanding the end times, has to do with when will Jesus reign upon this earth. And you have premillennial, you have uh, uh, postmillennial, you have millennial, And we'll look at, at each of these. And there's, there's variations of each one. But this is built around, and it, it, there's so many passages to turn to, where promises are given to Israel, um, to believers, that Jesus will come and rule a reign upon this earth. So many to look at. But let's just look at one. And it's Revelation chapter 20. Um, Turn with me there. Revelation 20. You can find that one easy. It's in the back of the book. It's where all the answers are. In the back of the book. Jesus is coming back and it's all going to be good. There's your answer. (laughs) Revelation 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's a millennium. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. So that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a little while. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is he who is has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. Hell. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So if you read this literally, you might expect that Jesus is going to rule and reign upon this earth for how long? A thousand years, if you take it literally. So this is the passage. But some will say, no, 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 no. This is this is not the case, and, and we'll talk about some of those other views. But let's talk about the first view, and that's the uh, premillennialism. And this is the, the, the idea that the millennial kingdom will follow Christ's return to the earth. We just read it, Revelation 20. After Jesus comes to rescue Israel, as they call out and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he, the heavens will open, the stables will be open, Jesus will come down, defeat the Antichrist, rescue Israel. And then he will rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. That's the premillennial view. It was the view that the early church held to, um, and really was not challenged for hundreds of years. Um, and then it began to be challenged, and be, people began to take it allegorically. And, and maybe if we have time, we'll talk about this a little bit. But I want you to know this: that dispensational premillennialism is the only view. That takes a consistent literal approach and thus concludes that Israel and the church are distinct. It's the only one. We see that this is for Israel. Well, how do you know this is for Israel? Because if you read around Revelation chapter uh, 11 through 14, you're going find to that, find that this is written and is very Jewish. It's about the 12 <laughs> tribes of Israel, and that there will be some from each of those tribes that are going to be preserved from the trouble. It's happening in Jerusalem. And you read over and over about Israel. So, but this is a view that takes a literal approach. I believe that it's going to literally take place. Um, and that Jesus will return and he will be upon this earth. Uh, just as he promised actually even to, um, to Mary, the angel did. Um So Jesus is going to establish a political kingdom that will be centered in the literal city of Jerusalem. And he's going to fulfill all of those promises that were made to Israel. Um, Tyler referenced one of them, Micah chapter 5. Amillennialism. This is a a view that says the kingdom will only be a spiritual rule of Christ. Uh, This view holds that um, there will be no literal political kingdom Upon the earth, let me read to you. I want to quote to you um, from uh, Wayne Grudem. Summarizes this view of all millennialism. He says, "Those who are said to be reigning with Christ for the thousand years are Christians who have died and are already reigning with Christ in heaven. Christ's reign." in the millennium, according to this view, is not a bodily reign here on earth, but rather a heavenly reign he spoke of when he said, all authority is given in heaven and on earth uh, has been given to me. So they actually believe that we are in the millennium right now. So one of the things we read in Revelation 20, what happens to Satan during the millennium? He's bound up with a great chain and he's thrown into a pit that he might not deceive the nations anymore does that sound like today to you i like what pastor chuck used to say he goes if we are in the millennium right now then satan has a really long chain that chain that he's bound up with boy he has all kinds of latitude I mean, he's deceiving the nations all over. Now, their response to that is to say, yeah, but the gospel's gone out into the world. And many people are believing, every tribe, tongue, and nation they're believing. And they say, see, he's been bound. But, but when we read Revelation chapter 20, it sounds like a complete uh, uh, bondage and incarceration is not just a chain. He's put away into a different place. He is still having a heyday today, deceiving the nations. So that is all millennialism. It says that we're in the millennium right now. It's a spiritual rule of Christ upon the earth. Um, And so at the second coming of Christ, the kingdom will come to an end and the events of the future eternal state will be fulfilled. And so we just kind of, you know, being in the presence of the Lord in heaven. And all millennialism remained the dominant position of the church from the fifth century to the 17th century. That's a long time. From the 5th century to the 17th century. How did they get from premillennialism, believing in a literal kingdom, to, to this, amillennialism? Well, allegorical thought played a big part of it. The other view is postmillennialism. This is the third view, and it believes in a literal kingdom upon the earth before Jesus returns, before he returns premillennial says Jesus is going to come back and then he will set up the kingdom. All millennialism says, eh, forget it. I mean, not really. They don't say that. But um, they're like, it's happening right now. It's all good. And, and then postmillennialism says, we actually got to get to work. We got to get this thing set up. We got to get this earth whipped into shape so, we can, so that he can you know, come back. And when he comes back, and he is, his reign is upon the earth, then he will come back. I mean, talk about pressure. Man. You know, but this was a view that was adopted at a time when it seemed like the world was making so much progress. But you know, it was after the world wars, World War I and II, that this view and post millennialism started to go on its decline. People were like, we're wicked. This world is not getting better. It is getting worse. We're devising new ways to do evil against people. And so this view really began to fall off. The most widely held view in the church today is all millennialism. So yes, from the 5th to the, 12th, to the 17th century, but it still, is, it still is, has a lot of people that would hold to this view. Um. So among those traditionally held views of the kingdom of God, it is only the dispensational premillennial that seeks to interpret the scripture and make literal sense out of it. I want to give you one more example um, of of this literal interpretation. Tyler took you to uh, Micah. I want to take you to a passage um, in Zechariah, a Palm Sunday passage. Turn with me. I'm going to make you find a minor prophet. I'm sorry. (laughs) Zechariah, chapter 9. You have a table of contents. Don't be ashamed. Uh, It's on page 1184, if that's helpful. (laughs) So, Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. You remember the the, the big event that happened on Palm Sunday. Um, Of course, they're praising the Lord. But what is Jesus come writing in on? A donkey, right? And he even tells his disciples, hey, go find the guy with the donkey. Go get him. And so they do, and he rides in. And, and Luke quotes this passage, but not all of it. Look at this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. I'm, I'm verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. Did that happen? Man, literally happened, didn't he? Got on a donkey's back. By the way, fun fact. Have you ever had an aerial view of a donkey's back? Go do it. Take, you can, don't do it now, but look at the donkey's back. Just You can type it in there. You'll have fun with it. See what you see. In verse 10, though it continues on. So we're reading literally. Donkeys, he's on it. He's coming with salvation. He died a few days later. Verse 11, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. This is a reference to Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem. There's not going to be anybody that's surrounding you. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 is literal. Verse 10 is Literal too. What you have to put between donkey of verse nine period and I of verse 10 is a second coming. A, a time when the church is waiting. And so, again, I believe that we, we, the first coming happened in verse nine. Verse 10 is the second coming. When Jesus comes, he's going to rescue them from the Antichrist and the nations that have gathered together. This is the only way you can read this and make sense of it in in a way that's meaningful in the way that it was written into those who first received it. Such hope and such promise. I want to close by just giving you a couple of verses. I'll read them, but you write them down. And um, it's, it's Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 36. Anybody? And Tyler's going to get into this. And um, saying that Israel, God's done with Israel. And it's significant to this discussion of the millennium because the millennium is about God fulfilling His promises to the nation of Israel. Like we just read. Like Tyler read earlier in Micah. Look at Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The question is, have you seen the moon, the sun or the stars lately? Yes, you have. What does that mean? That God is not done with the nation of Israel. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Israel? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Skipping down to the end of that chapter, Romans 11, verses 25 through 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Oh, don't be ignorant of this mystery. That should cause all of us to say, well, I don't want to be ignorant. But well, what should you not be ignorant of? Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. If you're ignorance of this, you might get this proud opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness for Jacob. Don't be ignorant of this fact that God has not done with his people Israel. And so we believe in a millennial reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth. We are dispensationalists, a consistent literal approach to interpreting Scripture. There's a difference between church and Israel. We are pre-tribulationists. We are not appointed to wrath. We are not in the day of the Lord. We believe that Jesus can return at any moment. We'll talk about that more later. We are pre We believe that Jesus will reign on the earth. We believe the promises of, uh, to Israel are yet to be fulfilled. We believe in both the first and the first and second coming passages should be interpreted literally. Because already the pattern has been laid down in the first coming. Why would we abandon that? We celebrate that Jesus came on a donkey. That He was born in Bethlehem. So literal. You can trust it. And now we're like, eh, allegorical. What a shame. I believe it is that we've done that.